continue through the book of Hebrews, so you can start getting yourself set up. Hebrews chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. Hope everybody is well. Um, trust those of you who are at home are also well. We're just continuing as elders to pray for not only peace, I mean, God's been faithful to bring his peace. I don't know about you, but I, I think so. I mean, from the many conversations that I've had with most of you now over these last number of months, it seems like the provision of God has been very palpable in many ways. Not just, you know, basic provision of need, but also emotional provision, spiritual provision. He just is so present with his church and that, that, um, that truth of him being with us was just ringing and resonating with me um, so much this morning. So I trust uh, that you at home are, are doing well and um, I'm going to just keep track of the time because it's hot. So Hebrews chapter 4, there's, um, there's quite a connection, an obvious connection. If we're keeping in mind, I think most of you were present last week, um, but there's, a, there's quite the obvious connection between chapter 3 and chapter 4. And, and really, it's the, the author has a point that he was making in 3, and it's just continuing on. Um, in chapter 4, but he, he takes a slightly different emphasis. And so last week, we saw that there was a warning to consider the sinful heart uh, of man whose inclination is towards the things that are other than Jesus Christ himself. I mean, that's what the heart does, right? The, the heart wants sinful things. And so the warning was to, to be aware and was to be on guard of the inclination of the sinful heart both for ourselves, but also within the corporate communal context of the people of God, that we together should exhort one another was the, was the, re, the resounding truth of chapter 3. And there, included in that was this parallel between the unfaithful Israel and God's people, the new Israel, the faithful new Israel, I should say. And so I want to take a moment before we look at the text itself, and I want to just draw our attention to what I believe is an edge of truth today in that statement as the faithful new Israel to kind of set the stage for um, Hebrews chapter 4. Am I yelling? I feel like I'm yelling. I'll try to. <laughs> okay, good. Felt like I was yelling already. That doesn't give me anywhere to begin, or I mean to end, right? If I'm already yelling. I won't be able to yell when something really important is being said. So this edge of truth that is as followers and obeyers of Jesus Christ, listen, it's by grace, as the new Israel, as those who follow behind the faithful servant, the second Adam, it's by grace which we have received, which comes as a result of our faith. We receive grace. It's by this grace that we are empowered with all that is needed, not only, listen, brothers and sisters, to live this life, but to complete this life. We have been given everything that we need, Scripture tells us, to not only live, but to finish the race, to not only start it, but to endure and to complete it. And as I said last week, where Israel failed, where Israel was unfaithful to God, Jesus, as the new and better way. Jesus as the superior way. He is the founder of our salvation. He is the better 
Moses. And he is the perfect sacrificial offering for our sin, which we will see later in this book of Hebrews. This is Jesus who has gone before us. This is Jesus whom we follow. In the great news of this better Jesus, which is the gospel itself, right? That is what the gospel is. Jesus is better. This great news is that he not only made the way through to the end, he not only made the way through to the end, but he has provided for us the means by which those who are his, that is us, to make finishing possible. He made it not only for us to be able to follow, but he has given us the means by which we will undoubtedly finish. This is what grace is. Grace is the undeserved and yet free gift of forgiveness for sin that is given undeservingly through Jesus Christ, which brings us into not only right standing with God, Grace brings us not only into right standing with God, but grace brings us into close proximity with God. Again, he is present with us. Jesus Christ has made a a way for us to draw near, and again, that too will be made visible later in the book of Hebrews, to draw near with a conscience that is clear by the blood of Jesus Christ, where we become aware that we are his son or his daughter, living our lives as his his new creation. This is what grace does for us. Grace is love for the unlovely. It's hope for the hopeless. Grace is rest or peace for those who have no rest. And grace is not just once in our life, but grace continues beyond the moment of being saved. Grace pervades our life and continues on as we continue on. And it's experienced. Grace in our lives, Christians, is the divine ability or the divine influence in our lives, not just in the moment of salvation, but also to be saved in the end. This is what is present for us. Do not live for sinful impulses, But as the reformers would say, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. That is why grace is present in our life, that we might live under the glory of God. Grace is a present experience that is anchored and rooted in a future hope of eternal glory that is realized, listen, this is important, that is realized now in part, but yet will one day fully be actualized and realized in our life. And it's this in-between, it's in this in-between space, which as you know, we call the now and the not yet. If you've been with us for any amount of time or if you've listened to any reform, reformer's teachings, you will hear this language of the now and the not yet. The reality of living presently in God's kingdom But yet the kingdom of God, although having been inaugurated through Jesus Christ, is yet to fully be actualized. And I would say it's here for us today, 
as those of us with our faith in Jesus Christ alone, we find ourselves living as followers of Jesus in the new covenant age, an age which is also known as the age of grace. Following, living, obeying, giving glory to, explaining and exemplifying Jesus Christ. And so I want to hold, as we look at our text at this moment, I want you to hold two things before us, before yourselves this morning. The first is new covenant Christians, as new creation life. Today that we live in the already but not fully yet reality of God's kingdom. That we live in the inaugurated but not fully consummated reality of God's kingdom. That's number one. And number two, that this, this now and not yet kingdom is characterized. It's one that is a kingdom that is characterized by grace. So we live in the now and the not yet. But, and in this kingdom, it is characterized by grace. So with that, let's look at Hebrews chapter four. I'm gonna be reading verses one through 13 this morning. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Read along with me, please. And receive this. This is the word of God. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. who have believed, for we who have believed, enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter the rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give account. So whereas the warning in chapter 3 was to guard ourselves from unbelief and deceit, the warning still remains, but yet this time, in, as he moves on in his thought, it has a slightly different emphasis. I'm sure you picked up on it as we read through, but 10 times in these 13 verses, our author will refer to this truth of a rest that we as his people are to enter into. 10 times he says it. 
We must be alert lest we fail to reach the rest, he says. He also says that we who believe have entered into that rest. He says that be God himself, because God himself has rested, so too do we rest. He also says that rest remains for some to still enter, even though Israel failed to do so. He says there remains still a Sabbath rest for God's people. In verse 10, he says, whoever enters into God's rest, rests from work. And in verse 11, he says that we must strive to enter the rest. And you might be thinking to yourself at this moment, well, which one is it? Have we entered into the rest, or is there a rest that is still to be entered into? And I would say that the answer is, of course, both, which is what I want to look at today. And as I said a moment ago, there is both a present and a future reality to the Christian life. There is a present rest, but there is also a future rest that the writer of Hebrews is trying to convey to his people. It's a twofold. It has a present application, but of course it also has a future one. So the present rest, the rest is this. The present rest is a rest which the Christian enters into which is salvation itself. Salvation that we have received through faith, by grace, is a rest for the weary soul. This is what Hebrews is telling us in verse 3. He says, For those who have entered, for those who believe, have entered into that rest. And by doing so, he says in verse 10, that whoever has entered into God's rest has also rested from his works as God rested from his. This lens of grace, brothers and sisters, this rest through salvation means that a present day, there is a present day cessation from the fleshly, man-centric, unpleasing to God toiling which ultimately is not only frivolous in what it can achieve, but it's actually opposed to faith itself because it seeks to achieve salvation's results through religious works and not through faith in Jesus Christ. The rest that we so sought outside of Jesus, before you knew Jesus, it was these works that was an attempt to achieve what only Jesus Christ could give to us by faith in him. Paul would say this. We, we know this text well in Galatians chapter 2. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, you are now being perfected by the flesh. And he points out the hypocrisy or the wrong thinking in the Galatian church that understood the rest that was given to them through faith in Jesus. But yet this tendency, again, here's the inclination of the sinful heart to want to leave the rest. Again, as I pointed out last week, just as Israel kept wanting to return to Egypt, so the sinful heart wants to return to unrest, in a sense. This, too, was also the plight of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, which Jesus, within his ministry, 
came and addressed and confronted time after time after time. And he says in Matthew chapter 23, he calls them the whitewashed tombs, which outwardly, here's this, this outward appearance, outwardly they appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones in all uncleanliness, he says. This was the offense of the religious system. It was the effort to attain righteousness through religious works. They are religious works which we take up that cannot attain that which only God attains for us through his Son. It's seeking righteousness for God's good pleasure through personal good works, which later in this letter, the writer of Hebrews will actually say they are dead works. They're not only fleshly works, but they're dead. They're dead in the sense that they are powerless to accomplish anything apart from Jesus Christ. This is the warning for us, brothers and sisters. The truth is that as believers, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have entered into the reality of a present-day rest where grace is present in our life, but yet the tendency for us again, in our sinful fleshly hearts, is to want to try to attain the very things that have already been given to us as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. The message here, then, is to rest in grace. It's to lean into the grace of God. It's to lean into the goodness of God and to the love of God, which is present for us, which was so present this morning at the Lord's table, and to cease from striving, to cease from trying to attain something on our own. This is the moralism that Rick spoke of a few weeks ago that has found its way into the American church. It's the moralism, it's the good works, it's the doing things in order to accomplish something. It's a pursuit of God that's, not, that's marked out not by grace, but by man's efforts to achieve righteousness. But as we know, because Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, it's by grace that you have been saved, right? We know this, amen. It's by the grace of God that you have been saved. Just receive that this morning, brothers and sisters. It's by grace that you have been saved through faith. And what does Paul go on to say? That this is not of our own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one can boast, Paul would say. But rather, our boast is in the Lord Jesus Christ, not in ourselves, but in him. So ceasing from these works is entering into this present day rest. It's acknowledging our lack and God's surplus. It's recognition of God's holiness and our unholiness and our sinfulness. It's admittance of our failure and our inability to keep God's moral laws completely and a recognition of his victory through perfect obedience and fulfillment of that very same law. This is what it is to enter in. It's to recognize and to acknowledge these things. It's to seek from seeking holiness apart from Christ and to relinquish ourselves to the conformity of holiness through the power of Jesus Christ. 
Is this resonating with any of you this morning? I hope it is. Because this is what it means to be a true follower of Jesus Christ in this present day. But, as some of you might be thinking to yourselves, but what about James 2? And what about this, this truth that seems to be maybe contrary to what you're saying, that faith without works is dead in itself? The difference is this. There's a, a statement that Martin Luther set forth to combat the Roman Catholic Church's heretical theology of faith plus something. And that statement, which you probably know, is this, that we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone. In other words, the equation is this. It's not faith plus works equals salvation. The equation is faith plus salvation equals works. See, the American church is putting the emphasis in the wrong place. It's putting the emphasis on the works plus the faith in order to attain salvation. At least that's what moralism would say. The salvation of a believer always leads to fruit. Works is not at the root, but works is the fruit of salvation. See, the gospel has always been and will always be Jesus plus nothing else. The gospel is always just Jesus. So this present rest that we enter into is, ce is ceasing from these works that would seek righteousness apart from God. We cannot please God apart from Jesus Christ. This is why in Matthew 11, Jesus says this, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest, he says. I will give you rest, a present day rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Secondly, there's a future rest. One is Hebrews verses 11 here says to us, he says to therefore let us strive to enter that rest so no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This rest remains for us to enter in through, through our perseverance and through our faith. It is the completion of the present rest. It's the completion of the present rest which we have entered into by faith in Jesus Christ that I've been speaking of in the last few minutes. This rest is the heavenly blessedness in which God dwells and of which he has promised to make persevering believers in Christ partakers of after the toils and the trials of life on earth have ended. There is a future rest for our souls that is the completion of the present partial rest that we experience. And I say partial because as I've pointed out, we understand the reality of the present day struggle, of the war between the spirit man and the fleshly man. As I previously mentioned, the wilderness story is analogous to the Christian life in many ways. I spoke on that last week. One of the such ways is the parallel of the wilderness journey. 
having been set free from enslavement in Egypt, God leads Israel into a space of obedience, into a space of calling them to obedience and trusting upon him as he leads them to their promised resting place, which is Canaan. But of course, we know that Israel fails the test by complacency, by disobedience, by choosing not to believe in him in faith. And because of this, they failed to enter into the rest that God had prepared for them in the promised land. Brothers and sisters, so too are we journeying today through wilderness trials, looking in hope and in faith towards our final place of rest, the glorification of our souls, the glorification of our bodies, our eternal presence with God himself. Hence the statement in verse 6 that he makes, that it remains still for some, that it remains still for some to enter into it. So there is a rest that still remains, that is still available. This opportunity remains today. Canaan wasn't the end goal. It was simply a picture of a greater truth. Therefore, today, he will say, today, if you hear his voice, today, do not harden your hearts. The importance of the emphatic today, both here as w- in chapter 4 as well as in chapter 3 where it was introduced, was to show that the rest that was for Israel, listen, the rest that was for Israel was the same rest as he will say later in chapter 4 that was for the psalmist's time or for David's time. And it's the same rest for the first century Christians who the writer was addressing, and it's the same rest for us. In other words, there is a rest that still remains to be entered into. And he goes on to say that Joshua didn't lead them into the rest, even though he led the people into the promised land. And I was thinking about this as I was studying, actually this was last week, as I was thinking about the truth that even though they entered into the promised land, what did they have to do? They had to continue to war. They continued to battle. That's again the same picture of the wilderness and of the present day reality of the Christian life. We've entered into a rest, but we still battle and we still have to fight those which trials which the Lord places in front of us. So there's an importance in the statement of today. Not only is it to show that there is a present rest to enter into, but also the urgency. It's to convey the urgency in the writer's mind. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There's an urgency in a call to respond to the gospel today. Not just for salvation, but for us as believers to respond to the voice of God. To continue in obedience. To continue in faith. Our author is saying to his readers, you must realize that you are in a similar situation as the people of Israel. Our trials, our Christian trials in life, are the same and similar to their trials in the wilderness. And how we respond to them may very well determine our future rest.
Richard D. Phillips, who's a theologian and a teacher at Westminster Seminary, says this, that we must embrace God's offer of salvation personally through faith. It's not enough simply to come to church any more than it was enough to have been a member of Israel during the Exodus. I thought, what a great statement that was. And how applicable it is to so many individuals today who think that just because they're present, that is enough for salvation. He says it's not enough to have been a member of Israel during the Exodus. It's not enough to hear the gospel or even to understand it, to explain it to others, or even to appreciate the wonder and the beauty of the gospel. Unless you receive the gospel in faith, you will not enter into God's rest. You will not be saved. I just so appreciated that. It's not enough to just be here. Just as it wasn't enough to be a part of Israel in the Exodus. Will we believe in faith and follow God? Or will we disobey and become hardened in our hearts, as he warns us in chapter 3, and even for some, potentially turn away from God. So the significance in this statement of today is that his hearers would respond now. The significance for us today, in everything that I'm saying, you guys, is to respond now. Respond to the grace of God. Lean into the grace of God. Cease from our toilings and enter into the present rest and anchor your hearts in the future hope of the eternal rest which awaits us someday. All the while understanding that God sustains those, as I said in the beginning, he gives us the ability to complete the race which he brings us into. After all, Israel saw God move mightily, did they not? And yet we still know that there were some who did, not, who did not believe. Think of this for a moment. So many saw the plagues in Israel, were part of God's people who saw the angel of death pass over them through obeying what God had told them to do at that time. And as I said last week, they saw the Lord's deliverance at hand through the Red Sea. They saw the miraculous provision time after time after time in the wilderness. They saw the, the cloud by day and the fire by night. They saw the presence of God indwell the temple of God. They were recipients for the grace through the remittance of sin by the sacrifices of the priests and the celebration of all the festivals and the keeping of God's commands, and yet some did not enter. Many did not enter into. The warning here is so clear. Only you know your heart before God. Yes, we see fruit in our lives, but the, 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 the reminder here for us is to ensure that we are in the faith, to ensure that you are in the faith today. And the assurance of your faith comes by the fruit of perseverance. For we know that those who persevere to the end will be saved. So this isn't a fear statement. It's just a moment of sobriety. And for us who we know that we are in the faith, 
then also the warning or the encouragement remains to keep ourselves from the deceitfulness of sin and the hardening of our hearts. To not allow sin to take root within us. So just very quickly, let me end by saying this. How do we enter? It should be hopefully plainly obvious, but I'll say it nonetheless. Again, Hebrews 4 tells us that we who believe have entered into the rest. So there is a reality of that already, that those who have both heard the message of the gospel and believed upon it in faith enter into the rest of God through Jesus Christ. And as followers here today, we've already entered a present-day rest of ceasing in our works. So therefore, the encouragement is to continue in that cessation. We must, again, simply lean into the grace of God. We must lean into the provision of God for this life. The empowering of the Spirit of God for the daily necessities, for the daily ability to walk this life out, for the daily ability to overcome the trial, which of course we know, the suffering, which of course we endure, the hurdles and obstacles that this life brings before us, which each one of us today are probably incurring or have recently incurred some sort of various trial. The grace of God is present for you today. Enter into the rest. You don't have to try to please God. He's already pleased with you because he's pleased with his perfect son, Jesus Christ. But of course, as I've already stated, even though we've entered into it, there is still a present command, still a present encouragement and exhortation and admonishment to strive to enter it. There is a need to persevere. If it was disobedience, unbelief, and unfaithfulness to God that kept Israel from entering into their rest, we must see, in contrast, that it is obedience, that it is belief, and of course faith, that allows us to enter into our final rest. Israel's deliverance from bondage didn't carry them directly to their final goal. Think of this for a moment. God delivered his people from Israel, but he didn't just usher them straight into Canaan. No, he led them into the wilderness. It was here that their belief in God would be proven genuine or false. So too is it true of the Christian life. We are not saved from sin into sinlessness. We are saved from sin into grace and from grace into glorification where sinlessness awaits us one day. Thus the result is a faith that resounds. Listen to me please. The result of this truth for us is a faith that resounds just like Paul's statement and profession not just a statement of truth, but this was Paul's confession to the church and profession to himself and to those who would hear, where he says this, for I am sure, and I love that language, I am certain, he says, there is no doubt in my mind that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things that are present nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, 
nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, that is a confession that is consistent with this understanding of what we have entered into and the future hope that we also have. And can I just point out here as well as I land that this is a confession that is not made in isolation. In other words, this isn't just Paul's personal confession, but what does he say? That there is nothing that will be able to separate us. This confession is made in community. Just the same as the exhortation in chapter 3 was to exhort one another. So too does this entering into the rest find a corporate communal application that, brothers and sisters, we don't do it alone. We're not called to strive alone. We're called to persevere and to strive together in community and in support and with the, the joy and the faith of one another. What an encouragement that truly is when actualized and when walked out. We don't do it alone. We enter together, we finish together, and we finally will enjoy together. Amen? So for those outside of Jesus Christ, which again, as I would say, only you will truly know your own heart, the call is to place your faith in Jesus, to cease from striving, to cease from the works, to put your faith in what he has done. It's Jesus plus nothing else. We, can, we brought nothing into our salvation. We can add nothing to it through our journey of following him. Today, if you don't know Jesus Christ, receive the free gift of grace. He wants to not only forgive you, but he wants to bring you also into awareness of his love for you. My prayer today is that it would be this grace which resounds as an overarching characteristic of our life, that we would be a people, a community that's earmarked by grace, who have understood the rest that we have entered into, and together we would encourage each other as we see the day approaching all the more to continue. Don't give up hope. Continue to strive for that which will be ours one day. Amen. Let's stand together. just want to take a moment and provide an opportunity to respond. We've got a few minutes remaining. Kev, come on up, man. Why don't you go ahead and um, you can share what your thought is. Yeah. We, um, let me just say while Kevin's grabbing the microphone, just an opportunity here to reinforce the value that, value that we have of team. Just because one person stands up here each week doesn't mean that you know, we're the end-all, be-all. But uh, we value God in each other. We value God in, in you as well. And uh, I think it behooves us to respond accordingly and to hear what God would say. Go ahead, man. Sure. Um, real quick. Uh, how do you know your own heart? Paul said, I don't even know my own heart. Mm. God will judge my heart. But there's a little scripture tucked in here in verse 4 that allows us it's, a, it's the tool of God that allows us to know where we are with him. And it's verse 12. For the word of God is living, it's active. 
It's sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge your thoughts and your intentions of your heart. Young ones, spend time with God in the word. This is where he'll speak to you. This is where he'll correct you. This is where he will tweak you. Oh, by the way, this is where he will offend you. (laughs) Right? He He will deal with you. And this is one of the things I said probably about a month ago was examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Yeah. Not your faith, the faith. And one of the, one of the tenets of our faith, of the faith, is the inerrancy of Scripture. And right now, this is being attacked. Yeah. Hugely. Oh, he didn't say that. He couldn't have said that. Well, if we're not in here, we can make up anything we want. And in fact, I'll talk about that next week, where we're pretty adept at uh, designing Jesus into our image. Mm-hmm. And walking with a Jesus that uh, is accommodating to us. Mm. Huh. He's not accommodating at all. Let the word of God, guys, search our hearts. All right? That's good. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would uh, help to, at this moment, God, we we actually want to, I want to begin by just recognizing, again, that there are, are, aspects of this so much of what has been said is of course apart from us and so we cannot attain it on our own and so we ask that you would help us today to not only be strengthened by your grace but empowered by your spirit lord to live this life of perseverance to live this life of belief and hope and to be messengers and ambassadors of the same message of hope and belief and faith in jesus the christ We ask, Lord, that you would strengthen us again just as a community in this time of separateness or seemingly of distance from one another, that you would help us, Father, to encourage each other all the more as we see the day approaching, to be in the faith, as Kevin just said, to be of faith and to be in the faith, Lord. We ask, God, that you would speak to each one of us this week, massaging into our hearts these truths. Let us be a community earmarked by grace. People who rest, people who have ceased from striving in the earthly, fleshly sense, but yet strive in faith to attain that which you have set before us. We thank you, Lord God, for this church. We thank you for those who are not present with us, and we ask that you would guard them. Protect them, strengthen them, Lord Jesus. Keep us alert and on guard and ever faithful and ever watchful. In your name we pray, amen.